I wanted to talk to you today about the top ones I read this year. I've got a list of the honorable mentions and then the top two books. Now, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but neither of us want that. So what I'm going to do is pull out my biggest takeaway from each of these books, my single biggest takeaway. And that is the thing that stuck with me after having read them and tried to integrate them and living with them. Welcome to the 38th episode of the Leader Rising Podcast. I'm your host and coach, Paul Carvanis. We're here for people who want to get the most out of life, who want to live it fully, who want to be who they want to be, do what they want to do, and just feel alive. If that resonates with you, you're in the right place. So I love to read. I always have. And it started with fiction. I love a good high fantasy, swords and sorcery, or sci-fi, guns and spaceships in the future. But I also really enjoy a good nonfiction, personal improvement, self-help book. And so I wanted to talk to you today about the top ones I read this year. I've got a list of the honorable mentions and then the top two books. Now, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, but neither of us want that. So what I'm going to do is pull out my biggest takeaway from each of these books, my single biggest takeaway. And that is the thing that stuck with me after having read them and tried to integrate them and living with them. And I was about to say, I'm going to tell you about these books so you don't have to read them. But I do want to stress that it is just my my single biggest takeaway. Yours could have been different. And I can almost guarantee you, you would have had more than just that one. So these are some pretty great books. And I would recommend you read them if you're at all interested. The other thing too is there are other great books I read this year that didn't make it on the honorable mention list. Things that I have taken stuff away from, like The War of Art or Built to Sell. Um, there's tons of great books out there. And if you're listening to this and you've got a great book that you've read, please fire me a note. I love to hear about them and read them if I have the opportunity. So the honorable mentions. High Performance Habits is the first one I want to mention. This is Brendan Burchard, the guy who owns Brendan.com, a whole bunch of number one New York Times bestselling books. And this book is about the six habits that lead to high performance. So you master as many of these habits as you can. He says you will become a high performer. The thing that stuck with me the most was his habit generating energy. And I want to read to you a short quote from the book. Your energy is not a fixed mental, physical, or emotional state. Again, you don't have energy any more than a power plant does. A power plant transforms and transmits energy. In the same regard, you don't have happiness. Rather, you transform your thoughts into feelings that are or are not happy. You don't have to have sadness. You can transform it to something else. Now, something about this clicked with me. It made me realize, yeah, I actually do generate these emotions. So it's not just about trying to change the circumstances in my life that I've noticed lead to certain emotions. 
I can actually take responsibility for generating certain emotions as well. So my responsibility doesn't stop at trying to create a container where good emotions are more likely to develop. I've noticed that one of the best ways to do this is to focus on gratitude. When I think about the things that I'm grateful for, I'm generating good energy. I will say it's not so clear cut. I've been going through a bit of a rough period lately, which you'll hear about next week. And I've noticed that it's not always so easy to generate these good emotions. You think it and then feeling it can be a little more difficult. So I, I don't think that it is, is as simple as just creating your emotions. I do think you need to manage the container where good emotions are more likely to come up. I do think we need to figure out how to process and deal with the emotions we don't want. And despite all of those other parts, I think that this is an incredibly important ingredient. Next, how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. It's funny, this isn't even the first time I read this book. I decided, like most people who are expecting a kid, that I was going to prepare for it. Now, I know a lot of people read books about labor and delivery because that's the first thing on the list. But I looked at it and I thought, well, hold on. Uh, I've got support for that. And it's really only going to last like a day or two. I should prepare for when they're a kid. Now, you know, Paul being Paul, instead of reading about the first year, I read about the stuff I was interested in, which is actually communicating with them. So the stuff that'll help from, I don't know, year two or three or four or on and onward. And it's interesting because I read it. And even though I was planning in advance for my kid years down the road, I actually noticed, even though the book was about talking to kids, I noticed that things improved at work immediately. I was able to communicate with people better. So I recommend this book to anybody. It's a nice, easy read. So I read it again, though, now that my kid was approaching three. And the biggest thing that stuck with me is giving kids what they want in fantasy. So my kid says, oh, I really want to eat more Skittles. Now my gut is to say, no, you've had enough. <laughs> like Dessert is meant to be eaten a little bit at a time. And instead, I can say, yeah, man, I hear you. I wish we could eat all the Skittles. I wish we could have a bathtub full of Skittles. And he goes, yeah. He knows that there's not going to be more Skittles. He doesn't need to hear me lecture him. He just wants me to vibe with him. He wants me to know that I understand him, that I'm on the same wavelength. Think about it too. This matters with grown-ups. You know, when someone comes into your office, ah, oh, blah, 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 blah. They don't need you to find a solution. They need you to connect with them on a human level. The next honorable mention, Primal Leadership. Now, of all of the books on my list, I actually think that this is the one that has the most untapped potential for me. So I will be revisiting this at some point in the future. The biggest takeaway for me is, is not even a specific thing. It's a mindset. It's this idea that leadership is a toolkit rather than something where there's one right answer. So prior to reading this book, I thought that there was a perfect leader, one who had a certain way of doing things that would always work. And after reading this, I realized, oh no, it turns out that there's different things that work well in different situations. So having grown up in one of the big firms and worked with people who are pace setters and demand all of the stuff all of the time, I came to view that as a leadership skill that I didn't really 
like and didn't think was the best in the long term at keeping your people engaged and frankly, just keeping them there. Also, the leadership skill of telling people what it is they have to do and not soliciting their opinion. I thought that was ridiculous. Any leader who is the smartest person in the room hadn't done a proper job at picking the rest of their team. And if there's other people in the room that are smarter than you, wouldn't you want to have their opinion on things? Turns out, however, that these actually do have their uses. So the commanding style, where you basically tell people what to do, it builds resonance by soothing fears, by giving clear direction in an emergency. So when it's appropriate in a crisis to kickstart a turnaround or with problem employees, pace setting is the other one, where you're just demanding and setting a really challenging pace. It builds resonance by meeting challenging and exciting goals. And when it's appropriate is to get high quality results from a motivated and competent team. So it, it does work there. It doesn't necessarily work all the time, but in certain circumstances, these are the best tools for the job. Now they're not the most resonant. The, the other four leadership styles that they talk about, visionary, coaching, affiliative, and democratic, I think need to make up the bulk of our toolkit. But I was ready to write off these other two styles. So, so the, my biggest takeaway was that they do belong in the toolkit. I'm sure that I will be coming back to this book at some point in the future for me and also for you. The next honorable mention, so good they can't ignore you. Cal Newport. This is an interesting book, and I read it with my book club, and I found it a bit polarizing. I loved it, and some of the others didn't think it was as compelling. I will say one of the things that spoke to me had to do around his thoughts around the passion hypothesis. So I grew up being told and believing that if I found what I loved to do, I would never work another day in my life. That became the standard. And every time I got somewhere, I'd measure it up and be like, no, this doesn't measure up. Okay, I need to look for something else. And Newport says that he calls this the passion hypothesis. He says it's not just wrong, it's also dangerous. Telling someone to follow their passion is not just an act of innocent optimism, but potentially the foundation for a career riddled with confusion and angst. Now, that sort of resonates with me because I kept looking for something where it would feel that amazing. And I had that confusion and I had that angst and that uncertainty. So Newport says that it's not that we have a passion we need to find. It's that passion follows our skills. So develop your skills and you'll build a passion that you'd be happy to follow. And the other interesting takeaway, the bonus one here, is the one I took even from the title, which is from a, a quote from a Steve Martin interview. So good, they can't ignore you. That really, that's what it's about. You don't need to worry about the tricks, the trappings, getting the edge here, the edge there. It's really just about being so good that you can't be ignored. And there's something about that, about mastering the craft that really resonates with me. The last honorable mention, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. So you may or may not know, but if you've been following me for a little while, you probably do know, I'm a bit of a fanboy of Brene Brown. I thought this book, Dare to Lead, was great, dense, 
it took me a while to get through it and actually to put it down because I didn't want to skim over it and miss out on any of the wisdom that she tucked in there. So it really took me a while. Now, despite how full the book was of amazing stuff, picking my biggest takeaway was easy. I've always wondered why I trust some people and not others. And in particular, what I find confusing is when I like people, but don't want to share my secrets with them. And it's not because I'm a secretive guy. I ha- I like being an open guy. But there are some people where I just like, ah, I don't know about this. And so, Brene and her team looked at this and broke down trust into seven factors. She picked the acronym BRAVING. So, the B is for boundaries. You respect my boundaries. The R is for reliability. You do what you'll say. The A is for accountability. You own your mistakes. Apologize and make amends. The V is for vault. You don't share what isn't yours to share. And ultimately, this was the one where, in retrospect, I realized this was a warning sign where people would come in and they would tell me things that I'm like, "Ah, you shouldn't be telling me that. Can I trust you with the stuff that I tell you? The I is for integrity. You choose courage over comfort. You practice for your values. The N is for non-judgment. You don't judge me. And the G is for generosity. You assume the best of others and their intentions. And if you do all of these things and do them all well, people are more likely to trust you with things. And I think if you do any of these well, it's not going to guarantee that I trust you. If you do any one of them poorly, you can almost guarantee I'm not going to trust you. Okay, those are the honorable mentions. And I couldn't pick the top book of 2020. So I picked the top two books of 2020. The first one is Atomic Habits by James Clear. You've probably seen this book come up a few times on this blog and podcast. The top takeaway for me from this book was this idea of building an identity. That every time we take an action or don't take an action, we cast a vote for the type of person we are. And so if you want to change your identity, it's not done in one fell swoop. It's done by the consistent taking of actions, day in and day out. And maybe the most important part of this is actually to use the election as an analogy. No election is one with 100% of the vote. So don't worry about getting 100% of the vote. You just worry about trying to get as high as you can. And 51% can be enough. So when you've been eating well for three weeks and you have that day where you eat like total shit, that's okay. It doesn't mean the next day you need to eat like total shit as well. It's not like you've just lost. You are never going to get 100%. Don't worry about 100%. Be kind to yourself. And keep doing what you can do. And the second best book of 2020, for me at least, was the book Personality Isn't Permanent. Sometimes something comes along in our life, and it is just the perfect time for that. I still remember when it was a kid, I'd never heard of the movie The Matrix, but I went with my cousin and my aunt to the movie theater, and we went in, and I sat down, and my mind was blown. I had no expectations, and it was just the coolest effing thing I had ever seen. And it changed my perspective. I couldn't necessarily tell you on what, but I thought differently coming out of that. 
And I feel the same way about this book, Personality Isn't Permanent, especially considering I play in this space. It's a little weird to say, like, wow, I, my thinking is now totally different than it has been for the last two years. But hey, uh, it, it's the truth. The interesting thing is I've been really focused over the last two years on trying to become who I am, on uncovering authenticity, on using that as the compass for where we need to be going. And this book makes a great point. It says, hey, who here was the exact same person 10 years ago? Now, when I look back at who I was 10 years ago, absolutely not. I mean, first of all, that was pre-kids, and so time was completely different. But things were so different. I was in it. I wasn't in this relationship. I hadn't yet met my wife. I, <laughs> as I'm recording, I'm hearing a little kid stomp around, whisper in the background, and it's pretty funny. That didn't exist in my life ten years ago. And when I think back to the 10 years before that, it totally changed again. And the 10 years before that, totally changed. Now, I feel like I, I may have changed a little more than most people, but that just goes to the magnitude. It doesn't go to the fact that we are all changing. And so if we are all changing, is the question really, who am I? Well, no, Benjamin Hardy says. The question is, who do you want to be? And so don't focus on uncovering some authenticity that's always been there. Focus instead on your aspirations, who you actually want to be. And then using atomic habits and changing your identity and casting votes one action at a time, you can get there. We can get there. So thanks for sticking with me. This has got to have been my longest episode. My, my longest non-coaching episode of the entire podcast. And uh, thank you for 2020. It's been a wild year. Ups and down and sideways and every which way. And I'll see you next week with next year with uh, a big announcement. The end of season one of the podcast. Dream big, live bigger. Peace.